My daughter calls me slow go. <laughs> I must have been born, I, I was a tortoise probably in the last life. I move, I'm, I'm, I'm like a hulking slow mover. I think slowly. When I start to think on the streets, I start to slow down. When I hike, I hike about a mile behind my family and friends. You know, I don't think I have learning disabilities in that sense, but I think somehow in order for me to complete a thought, I have to go very slowly. And it shows up in my work. It makes it very hard for my colleagues. It's, it can be excruciating. But that is, you have to come to terms with sort of how you're wired. You are listening to She Does, a series featuring women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women got to where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elaine. And today, we're excited to introduce you to independent filmmaker Deborah Granick. You may have seen her second feature-length film, Winter's Bone, which features a young Jennifer Lawrence in a gripping story set in the Ozarks. Winter's Bone won several awards at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival. It also received four Academy Award nominations in 2011. Her narrative work is heavily influenced by real life and real people's struggles. So it makes sense that recently, Deborah has found herself exploring the nonfiction world. She released a documentary titled Stray Dog, a contemplative portrait of Ron Stray Dog Hall, a biker, Vietnam vet, and lover of tiny small dogs. Deborah invited me to her studio in New York City to do this interview. We chatted for nearly two hours on a cold day, along with the lovely and always noisy radiator. That is that. Okay, um, that is that's a that's a New York radiator <laughs> doing its thing. The words and accolades are relevant, but there's always more to the story than that. You know, the bedrock, the foundation that informs the work and makes the artists who they are. Deborah grew up in a Maryland suburb of D.C., a place she calls the land of nowhere. Yet after working in different regions of the country a little bit, I found out that I do have an identity, a regional identity, which is would be called, you know, the Mid-Atlantic States and or the East Coast. Spent a lot of time in Boston and, you know, coming of age in the college kind of way up there. And so the East Coast definitely has formed who I am. There's no there's no doubt. Deborah entered the world of filmmaking in the late 1970s, a time of revolt, a time of change. Equal, equal rights, equal rights to have a job, to have respect, to not be viewed as a piece of meat. Equal rights to, uh, to set forth our own humanity. Equal rights to get into graduate programs, to get into schools. Women were leading movements and rallying around issues related to reproductive rights and the environment. And women were documenting it all. And it wasn't celluloid film that was being used to document. It was videotape. Deborah calls it the era of democratic media. And she was taught by the women who were there on the front lines. It was a kind of a pleasurable way to be introduced to the idea that, you know, your art is your weapon or your media is your weapon. And that kind of suited me really just fine. There was a quiet way for women to evolve in filmmaking, which was in some ways the, the low key off the radar way, which is you just do, you keep doing it. You slog at it, you do it. It's not full of glamor. And why do you think it was women that were doing that type of work? Because no one could say yes or no. Self-green lighting is a, big, is a big reason, I think.
the idea that powerful pieces could be made with simple equipment. You know, that those marches, those rallies, those meetings, those publications, those figures, those speakers, as long as you got them on tape, didn't really matter. As long as there was some kind of lasting evidence or some kind of evidence gathering. I do think that um, mentoring and role models have a huge influence. So pioneers do influence. Right. Do you have any role models? Barbara Koppel was a big, big grand dame for, for the folks coming up in my time. Who are you working with, honey? What? Who do Be you work impressed. with? Will you show me your press card? It's in the car. Show me your car. press card. This is doc filmmaker Barbara Koppel questioning the mine foreman in her film Harlan County, USA which won an Academy Award in 1976. The film documents coal mining strikes in Harlan County, Kentucky. Barbara embedded herself in this community. She made friends and allies, but she received threats as well. Where's this press card you was going to show me? Can I see your identification? Ma'am? May I see your identification? Yes, ma'am. If I had him, I swear I've lost it. All I can do is just say Oh, I think I might have misplaced mine, too. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Just any images of her standing out there with um, plumes of her breath showing in the Kentucky night or the, you know, just her being there and knowing that, that she knew to just keep showing up night after night, even though strikes are long. And, and she probably didn't know how it would shape up into a piece, but I, that's a role model of you don't need to know. And I think women, I'll speak for myself in this, but I, I know I struggle. I feel like it is more characteristic in socialization for men to feel comfortable not knowing. Oh my God, women check themselves so much they feel like they need to know. In order to borrow money, they need to feel like they know that, it, that, that this might work. You know, and you know, Bar Barbara Koppel, whether way back when she was very, very young and standing there collecting all this footage, whether she knew it would shape up or whether she, or, 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 or maybe it was a different attitude. I will make it shape up. Somehow, by hook or by crook, I will shape it. Maybe it's not like, will this make a piece? It's more like, I will make a piece from this. But making money is always part of the equation. So for years, in order to pay her bills, Deborah worked with trade unions and state agencies to make health and safety videos, industrial films, educational films, whatever you want to call them those typically boring jobs that pay. But Deborah got a lot more out of these jobs than you might expect. She saw something beyond the mundane. So I'd get a little contract to make a film about masks, you know, and the need for protective gear or ergonomics with United Food and Commercial Workers with bent wrists at the scanning machines for cashiers. I liked being inside people's workplaces, photographing them at work. And they were workplaces that I would not have been entitled to go into as a civilian. I couldn't go into the meatpacking world, you know, just say, knock on a door and say, can I see how the butchers are working? I couldn't go into the back rooms of huge supermarkets. I couldn't go in the break room where the cashiers talk. So that was my work life, but it was, it was actually very fulfilling. What was not fulfilling was that I wanted to know what everyone did after five o'clock. I was interested in the woman that went and fed her dog in the parking lot that she brought to work, you know. But of course, the very nice people I work for would say like, I don't think we really need the scene, you know. Why don't we move on to the bulleted, the PowerPoint part where you recap 
all the things that someone can do, you know, to prevent injury. fundamentals of her trade, how to direct, edit, how to get releases, how to produce, how to approach subjects and help them feel more comfortable with the camera, how to get cutaways. Stopping them and saying like, before you put that mask on, I know you're going to shave your facial hair. Can I watch you shave before you fit your mask? You know, can you do that again for me? Oh my God, I'm sorry. I missed that. Could you do it one more time? So I learned some rudimentary directing skills. So all I'm trying to say is that my day jobs frequently have, they've never been glamorous, but they've been in service to learning more about working with moving images and people. continues to be inspired by the ins and outs of daily life. She fills up her notebooks quickly with ideas, tons of them. I have gross metaphors and nice metaphors. Sometimes it's like, you know, thousands of sperm can come out, right? You can ejaculate in the trillions and only a few things take seed. Or meteor shower, maybe that's a more graceful thing where, you know, one or two falling stars get photographed and you can build from there and, what do you, you know. Think, uh, causes the meteor showers, meteor shower? I've never really known. Usually it's triggered by something touching me or something lyrical, something funny sometimes. Um, you know, I'll see something, you know, a student performance or something like a high school performance or something. Come to me, angel of music. Christine, angel! And I see it from the back of the auditorium that's in a proscenium that's really rigid. And just the poignancy of adolescence, the poignancy of awkward choreography, you know, and I'll just be like, oh my God, this speaks millions about, you know, how touching it is to grow up and how touching it is to try and how art making is difficult and dance is bizarre and music is sometimes bad and, you know, or, and great or funny or cheesy. Things will just start to just take off in my head. The wonderment. It's, it's so... Compassion or being touched somehow leads to wonderment. Wonderment sets off another chain of events, which is like, you know, wanting to like capture things. And so it goes. I think there is a gene for it. I don't want to be so biologically deterministic, but I just think there is a gene for it because I can't explain it. And so sometimes if I'm, if I'm receptive, if things are okay and I'm not my smallest self, then I'm receptive. A different metaphor would be like being like a sticky film, like, you know, not something that catches, you know, rats and flies, but sort of like that. Like going out and being receptive to like things sticking to you, you know, colliding with things, having things hit you. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes you're, you're strong enough or you're, you're, fun, you're, you're open enough or you're in a good enough mood to let things hit you. Other times you're just so closed up, you know, your parka's pulled up tight, 
and you're like, don't touch me. Don't get near me. I can't handle any more information. You know? And other times you're like, oh, whoa, bring it on. It you know, exactly. The way you got on the bus was interesting. The way you shuffled through your coupons was interesting. And you over there, the way you picked up your dog's poo was amazing, you know? And you over there, the way you tied your shoe was interesting, you know? So some days you're just so receptive. I can definitely relate to this. What about you? Oh, my God. I feel like she's the voice in my head. Yeah, same here. So there's this poet from South Africa. Her name is Bessie Head, and she actually passed away in 1986. But she believed we are each born onto our own unique path, determined by gender, class, race, and origin. This idea got Deborah interested in exploring what other paths, besides her own, might be like, and why. It will always be curious of curiosity to some people to jump tracks and ask, what is it like on your path? Geography affects who we are. We know that climate, we know all these things affect how, the formation of how we think and view and perceive. Therefore, it is intrinsically interesting to know. And survival tactics are interesting. You know, I think for me, that was part of what blew my mind about the Ozarks without romanticizing it. There are ways, other ways to define meaning in life and what makes life worth living and what makes life okay and what makes life work besides bigger, better, more. And you do not know that unless you venture out of your own culture. That, that's something you can't get if you just stay home. So there you have it, the foundation, the wonderment. And now we can appreciate her career, her work. Deborah made a short film called Snake Feed while she was a student at New York University. It won Best Short at Sundance in 1998, and it inspired Deborah's first feature film, Down to the Bone which won the Dramatic Directing Award at Sundance in 2004. This film tells the story of an upstate New York mother who checks into rehab for cocaine addiction. While there, she falls in love with a male nurse and with his help, falls back into her old drug habits. Down to the Bone was based on an original screenplay written by Deborah and her creative partner, Anne Rosalini. The main character, played by Vera Farmiga, was inspired by a woman that Deborah met while she was in film school at NYU. So the script was very much drawn from anecdotes from her existence. I think when people are asking questions about themselves and their peers and looking for ways to survive, I can't help but be very attracted and very drawn. And basically, very, I get very emotionally affected as well. Way down in Missouri where I heard this melody The old folks were humming The banjos were strumming so sweet and low. Survival is a running theme explored in all of Deborah's films, including Winter's Bone. The film was adapted from Daniel Woodrell's 2006 novel of the same name, and it follows Reed Dolly, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who, to protect her family from eviction, must locate her missing father. The film explores the interrelated themes of close and distant family ties, and the power and speed of gossip, self sufficiency, and poverty as they are all changed by the pervasive underworld of the illegal meth labs. And when you identify yourself as being from the East Coast, like Deborah does, and you're making a film set somewhere else, even if it's just another region of your own country, 
you're going to need some local training, especially if you're about to spend a lot of time in backwoods Missouri, in the Ozarks, skinning squirrels. How long do we have to wait for a squirrel? A long time, usually. Wish we can get deer. It's not time for deer. All right. Now get your fingers in there. I'll get mine in. One, two, three. Pull. Pull hard. I'm just going to slit it down here. Now get in there. Get them guts out. I don't want to. Sonny, there's a bunch of stuff that you're going to have to get over being scared of. I'm not scared. I just don't want to. Many of the characters in Winter's Bone were not professional actors, commonly called non-actors. They were locals whose authenticity came through on screen, much stronger than any actor Deborah could have cast. No one on my crew knew how to skin a squirrel. We were coastal people, except for, the, you know, we had a lot of local hires. But what I'm saying is local expertise, local knowledge has to flow. So it's never about an invasion. It's never about just showing up. You can't fake that stuff. There's no CGI that a film that's shooting for under $2 million is going to employ. I don't want to do that, personally. I mean, I, I'm, I am old school. I'm, I'm being phased out. I am, you know, in that sense, I'm kind of analog. And it doesn't matter that we're shooting on a red. <laughs> so the post-production's not analog, but the budget's analog. Let me put it that way. I love how going into this, Deborah was aware of the idea of invasion. She didn't want to misrepresent the place and fostered collaborations out of respect for the art form and for the locals and the regional culture. I mean, growing up, we'd go to the Lake of the Ozarks all the time in the summer. But my experience at the Lake of the Ozarks isn't the skinning a squirrel Ozarks depicted in Winter's Bone. My Lake of the Ozarks was pontoon boats and beers and koozies. I've never been witness to squirrel skinning in my life. My grandma shot and skinned squirrels all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Deborah gave herself and her crew time to assimilate. She gave the actors and non-actors time to interact and to get to know each other before turning on the camera, which is what makes the film so pure. As mentioned before, one actress Deborah brought on was 18-year-old Jennifer Lawrence, who took the leading role of Ree Dolly. Jennifer wasn't your typical Hollywood child actor. She had experience in the boonies. She was born in Kentucky, and she approached the role with an open mind and willingness to learn. Hi, how you doing? Sarge Shop. Ree Dolly. Nice to meet you. So what brought you down here today, Ree? Um, I wanted to find out more about the $40,000 I get for signing up. Well, that's a good reason for joining, but why don't you give me three better reasons for joining? Because once you join up, there's no turning back, and it might not be worth $40,000 to you. Well, the main reason is I need the money. It'd be nice to travel, I suppose. So Jennifer took it on herself as part of her actor's work or what, actor's prep, right, to meet the two youth that, who would play her brother and sister, the girl being the girl that lived on the, in the holler that we were filming in. And so she, um, she and Ashley had something immediately in common. Ashley's family was not raising horses, not breeding them, but had horses. Jennifer knew a lot about horses and had been raised around horses in a whole different context in a neighboring state where which horses are very, they're not just a massive symbol and, you know, but they're really embedded in the culture of parts of Kentucky. So they had something very concrete and, but Jennifer worked that. She made herself accessible to Ashley. She made herself uh, someone that Ashley could talk to. So Jennifer spent a lot of time just playing with the two younger actors. And Deborah facilitated this, or rather, she stepped back and let it happen. 
she forged a warm bond and made it so they could play with her. Like, play a, an imaginary game where they played that she was their big sister. And they were able to create a fictional world for themselves, the three, the three youth. And that was really rich for the film. In 2010, Winter's Bone won the Grand Jury Prize for Dramatic Film at Sundance. And it also received four 2011 Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. Awards are great, but sometimes they mean more pressure and offers to work on projects that might not really fit your goals. With that comes a series of choices and compromises that sometimes might be right in your work life to take those on and work with them. And, and other times you realize, oh my God, you know, it takes a long time to make films and you can't make so many at the same time. So it's a big choice, right? The bigger paycheck is with the bigger film. But I might still be interested in the one that's considered less commercial, less commercially interesting. So you may get those calls. People may knock on your door, and you still are going to have a hard choice in front of you, which is still it's still within the person to choose stories that make them feel like you know they can genuinely kind of step step behind it and really feel it, really feel it, maybe. One Sunday before production of Winter's Bone, Deborah met Ron Hall at a biker church in Branson, Missouri. She was sitting next to him on the pew and was intrigued by the word Vietnam tattooed on his arm. And so I, I, I ran after him in the parking lot. And he was just really very, very cordial. Uh, he's, he's got really down-home, friendly kind of cowboy manners. Morning. Morning. Which means that you entertain, you give people a few minutes to make sure that you know, before you shut down or walk away, you know, you kind of are open-hearted and you greet someone. So he just sort of dealt with the fact that I was flailing after him. And I pitched my, my plea, you know, quickly. And he's like, yeah, girl, I'll read. I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. You know, give me something to read. I'll read it. Ron became Deborah's ally and local connection to the region. He agreed to play the role of Thump Milton, the local crime boss who the main character is searching for in Winter's Bone. But outside of production, Deborah got glimpses of Ron's personal life, and this gave her the idea to make a documentary about him. Brothers and sisters ride to the wall, meet the soldiers who gave their all. Got a crippled brother, rides a three-wheel track, got black leather on his back. Stray Dog follows Ron, a biker and Vietnam vet, adjusting to life with his new wife, Alicia, who has just arrived to Ron's RV park in Missouri from Mexico. It's quite a tale of cultural adjustment as we watch him balance his commitments to his family, Alicia's two teenage sons, his neighbors, biker brotherhood, and fellow veterans. It's a combination of sadness, him dealing with the effects of the Vietnam War, but it's also really humorous and not so typical. So picture this, a burly, husky biker dude, 
hovered over a tiny little computer, attempting to learn Spanish so that he can communicate with his wife, who he loves so much that he will eat the nasty burnt toast that she makes without saying a word. And also picture this, him divvying out his extra Viagra in his living room to his friends, and then in the next scene, feeding kittens milk out of a bottle. I mean, he's really not your stereotypical biker. Deborah spent several years filming Ron in his day-to-day life, which created a different dynamic than when he was playing a role for her in Winter's Bone. And I was curious about some of those moments that we grapple with as documentary filmmakers. You know, the private, perhaps more tense. Those, like, steamy moments, like in the bedroom. (laughs) Yeah. Like, how did she make him feel so comfortable filming him when he was going to bed with his wife? He's definitely, again, that down-home thing, the thing that, you know, maybe is it urban person or a coastal person or upper middle class person that I'll never get you know he's like girl scene one scene them all it's just like you and your complicated whatnot you know I'm cooking dinner if you want to film me cook you know it was all very it was all very much like it must mean something to you and if it doesn't violate me it's okay with me you know (laughs) so and, and the thing with the bedroom is we were overt I mean overt he's like girl you know, I'll tell you when to leave so it doesn't become a porno. You know, it's like, I love that phrase. Like, you know, he was on top of it. He was directing for me. You know, he's like, getting into bed, no big deal. I was not filming the, a sexual act. I was not filming risque behavior. I was not having people dry hump like you would in a narrative film. To me, that's a little bit harder. I, you know, how to put pasties on people's gonads and tell them to like rub up against each other and fake having sex. Then I feel like dogma. I feel like those wild and crazy Scandinavian people, like, if you're going to have sex, have real sex, you know? It's like, for me, the dry humping thing is always, the simulacra of sex has always been a really weird thing. Like, whoa, I don't know where that came from. How did we get involved with that, you know? So it's probably not something we'll ever see in one of your films. Well, you know, I I don't want to make it, like, I I never want to say no. Right. But let's make it at least interesting sex. (laughs) You know? All right, so we have Stray Dog with Ron, and now Deborah's working on a doc about a New York City man who was recently released from prison. I kind of find it interesting that her fiction films have female leads, and then her documentaries focus more on male figures. Yeah, I do too, and Deborah has considered this pattern as well. And I, I was thinking just now that maybe the reason why I have to do those as documentaries and not as narratives is because, you know, I don't know from life experience, I don't understand men well enough to make assumptions and, and, and summarize. Like, I'd rather, because inst- I know what those look like. You know, I know what stereotypes of certain kinds of guys look like on screen, because we get tons of that. And we get a lot of pumped up fictional guys, right? We get a lot of heroes, even when it's not a superhero, even when it's a super lawyer, super surgeon. So we, we, get, a lot, we, got, we get a lot of males paraded in front of us. But I don't know the parts that I don't get to see on screen, so then I'm, therefore I have to actually do it in a documentary style where you know someone really shows me, That's interesting. you know how they shave, how they cook, <laughs> how they care, how they do this, how they work with animals and children, and how they, and, and maybe how they struggle about the stereotypes that are imposed upon them. In a documentary form, how would you work with the people to let them know that like you just want access, you know, you just want to be there. Um, they may not understand why you're filming what you're filming. But how do you communicate to them that, you know, 
just just ignore me. <laughs> you know, just, you know. Yeah, and I, I I'm working. I'm starting fresh on something now, so I've ha- I have to go through all of that again. And I have a person who he has not been out of his incarceration for very long. He's only four months, sort of, in the civilian world, and he knows what the subject is. He knows it's about life after incarceration, and he feels very committed to you know explaining lots of things. How do I say to him, your life will tell us by by watching you cook dinner and the fact that you are shy money for the dinner that you need for your six foot two body to get the nutrients you need. You may not have that money. You don't have to tell me that you don't have that money. The recordings will show that you're fighting to keep above water, that you are fighting really hard and that uh, some of the gigs you're getting don't even pay. They're they're more like internships. Um, when, When we see you having to run away at nine o'clock because your curfew for parole is really strict and you can't violate that and we understand that. That will tell us volumes, you know, about the fact that your life has these restraints on it that make your life extra difficult. So you ask such a great question, like how, you know, it doesn't, it's not like a Nike phrase. I can't just ignore us. I try that, of course. But I think the only way to ever get around that was for us to show up so much that he that he starts to forget a little bit about what it means. He gets used to us. It's called acclimation. Over the years, Deborah's recognized a change that has occurred behind the camera during production. The mindset of a big-time director taking all the credit for a crew's work is definitely a thing of the past. There's no space for that anymore, that old style of the big barking orders coming from the big man, the big man that gets special treatment and has an entourage and special gear and special food and special limos, special chairs, special megaphones. I think we're done with that paradigm. It's okay to thank people. It's good and it's healthy to thank people for their work. It's good and healthy to communicate. It's good and right and just to acknowledge the work of others. I think women do a good job saying, I am not the king. I am a head coordinator. And I'm working really hard with other people who are working really hard, who all are contributing something to this effort. It's been very rewarding for me to know that part of my filmmaking pleasures and progress happen by emboldening myself and joining forces with a solid team. And together we forge this vision and we, and we, we make things happen. So the, the exchange, the cross-pollination is a big, big pleasurable part of filmmaking. And to be ready for that and, and want that, seek it, cultivate it, cultivate it. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg and Elaine Sheldon, and sound design was by Billy Wurasnik. Thank you so much to Deborah Granick for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Oh man, I love that guy for the way he handed that cup of coffee to that other guy. Those are those moments where I feel grateful for the fulfillment that I get from this little cycle of intake processing review, intake processing review, and... I'll feel happy and I'll want to make more movies. 
This is episode four of She Does Podcast. And if you've been with us from the beginning, thanks so much for listening. It's also really important, if you haven't already, to give us ratings on iTunes. Uh, if you don't know how, ask a friend. Or just ask your daughter like my dad did last night. He's asking me for um, a password. Sharon, what's the password to uh, um, iTunes? Okay, I can do it. And I can also give it uh, the star for me. Yeah. We'd like to thank our partner, Filmmaker Magazine, and thank you to Alston Pudding Music Blog, who will be helping us with a new aspect of our show. We want to feature women making music. This might mean an all-female band, a solo artist, or even a band with both males and females, because we like all genders. We really just want to hear and highlight the women getting behind a mic and gracing us with this thing that makes life worth living, music. So in episode three, we featured the music of Cassie Lopez, This week, we bring you Hannah Waxman of Peach Pit. Hannah is the dreamy voice on the track you are hearing right now, Sunday to Monday, off their album Come Down Pilgrim. She also plays piano, tambourine, and even a little bit of flugelhorn for the band. I asked Hannah what she liked about playing live shows, and she said she always hopes the audience is having as much fun as she is. She said, and when they are, when they're dancing along, there are few better feelings than that. To find more Peach Pit's music, head over to our website where we'll house all of that good information, like upcoming shows, tours, and albums for each of our featured music makers. Besides Peach Pit, in this episode, you heard music by Chris Zabriskie, Jazar, and Gillicuddy. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye. Who says goodbye? Nobody.